You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. There's just so many eyes and there's just so many people looking for things that um, they, they just get found. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On today's show, Ben looks at a lawsuit against Google targeting location data. I've got the story of rising cyber insurance costs and the influence the insurance companies have on best practices. And later in the show, my conversation with Susan St. Clair from WhiteSource. We're discussing increased regulation in the open source community. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. All right, Ben, let's uh, jump right into some stories this week. Why don't you start things off for us? So I have the big one. Uh, You could have read this in pretty much any news source, but I'm taking my article from the New York Times, and it is entitled Mm. Four Attorneys General Claim Google Secretly Tracked People, and it's by Cecilia Kang. So the District of Columbia and three uh, other states, or three other jurisdictions, I would say, uh, Texas, Washington, Indiana, each filed separate state lawsuits against Google, claiming that Google misled users of Android phones and of applications like Google Maps and its search engine by continuing to track location information even after the user had tried to opt out of that feature. Hmm. Uh, So, like I said, it's four separate lawsuits, each based on consumer protection laws within those jurisdictions. So each Hmm. lawsuit is going to look slightly different, but it's a unified effort. They were filed on the same day. Um, and you know, I think it's important to note the political diversity here. You have the most liberal uh, jurisdiction in the country, the District of Columbia, and a blue state like Washington, and then you have two of the redder states in the country, Texas and Indiana, um, with a Republican attorney uh, attorneys general. So this is truly a, a bipartisan effort here, and part of kind of a legal onslaught against uh, Google that's been a multifaceted uh, onslaught over the past uh, couple of years. Hmm. So let's unpack what's going on here. I mean, I'm a Google user, and uh, as as part of my everyday use in Google, I sign in, and, and Google, uh, through the things they do, tracks my location. Uh, that's not surprising to anyone. But then I go in, and because and, uh, I'm concerned about my privacy, I go in and opt out of having that tracked, and I think I'm good to go, but... These attorneys general are saying not so fast. 
Exactly. You've done what you, you're supposed to do, so you change the settings on your account or on your Android device to stop location tracking. These lawsuits allege that Google still collected and stored location information through Wi-Fi data, marketing partners, uh, etc. Uh, so even when the user was proactive and tried to disable location services, uh, Google was misleading its customers, uh, at least this is what these lawsuits allege, by um, claiming that they've, uh, they're not tracking your location when they actually are. Uh, something else that this lawsuit alleges, which is really interesting, is that Google has misled and pressured users to enable more location tracking by claiming things like this application won't have full functionality without um, you know, the use of location services. So you're not hmm. going to get the full use out of this application unless you let us track your location. Hmm. Uh, and the allegation here is that that's a misleading business practice that violates uh, principles of consumer protection. Um, so, for example, the attorney general for the District of Columbia uh, is quoted as saying, Google falsely led customers to believe that changing their account and device settings would allow customers to protect their privacy and control what personal data the company could access. Um, but the truth is that contrary to these representations, Google continues to systematically surveil and profit from consumer data. Hmm. So it's, uh, you know, a... a a pretty serious allegation that I think is opening Google up to potentially some significant legal liability. Um, They are, of course, denying this claim. Uh, A spokesman for Google said that the case is based on inaccurate claims and outdated assertions, uh, that they have built privacy protections into their products, into their applications, into uh, their devices. Uh, So they are going to vigorously defend themselves uh, in court in these four states. Hmm. But, you know, I think there are a couple of broader lessons we can take here. One is, as part of this pushback against big tech that we've seen in other spheres, we've seen cases railing against monopolization, um, you know, other deceptive consumer practices. This is part of this full frontal legal attack on big tech companies, and Google is just the latest victim of that effort. Um, This is something that's relatively non-ideological. It's being pursued by attorneys general with uh, varying political viewpoints. And, you know, it's something that's broad enough that it would be covered by four separate state consumer protection statutes. Uh, So it's something that I'm going to be very interesting in following as these suits uh, move forward. What are the state's attorneys general looking to get out of this? Is this, uh, are they looking for money? Are they looking, is this a slap on the wrist for Google? Are they looking for Google to change their ways? What, what, What outcome here are we aiming for? Sure. So um, their prayers for relief vary. Um, They are seeking monetary damages. Again, that's the type of thing where, you know, if uh, the companies are successful or Google settles, all of us might get a payoff of 10 cents. um, (laughs) Right. When we take our proportion of the the monetary damages. Uh, I think they would look for injunctive relief or a declaratory judgment. Injunctive relief would compel Google to change these deceptive practices. Uh, and mm-hmm. some sort of declaratory relief would say, um, what you're doing here is illegal, and um, we're declaring it illegal, and you have to stop this behavior, or you're going to subject yourself to further ju- uh, judicial sanctions. 
Um, so there are a bunch of avenues uh, for potential relief that we see in, in each of these suits. I think for from the consumer's perspective, what we, you would like to see, since the monetary damages wouldn't be you know, significant enough, given uh, the fact that Google has millions and billions of customers, um, you know, I think seeing injunctive relief would, would probably be the best outcome for uh, people who are users of these platforms and devices, uh, because you'd be getting the relief of Google being forced to change these deceptive business practices. Hmm. Now, if these uh, states and, and, and the district are uh, successful here, could that success play into a case against Google on a monopoly basis? So the, the folks who are coming after Google for that, could they point to something like this as evidence in their own case? That's a good question. I think the cases are not necessarily related. I mean, the allegations are based on a completely different set of facts. Mm. Google could have completely cornered the market on applications or devices without having deceptive practices relating to location services and vice versa. They could have had deceptive practices relating to location services without unduly, you know, uh, limiting competition. And that's mm. true for all of the tech companies. I mean, I think there are very distinct legal issues that are being brought under um, completely distinct legal theories. So mm-hmm. antitrust statutes, whether at the state level or the, the federal level, are one thing. And then these broader consumer protection statutes are, are pretty distinct. And I don't think the two are necessarily closely related except to say that thematically we are finally seeing a broad pushback against big tech companies uh, on a number of fronts. And these lawsuits will continue to track independently? There's there's no uh, chance of these being combined into one thing, for example? Not these lawsuits because they're based on four separate state-slash-district uh, statutes. That's mm. going to be one really interesting aspect of this is, you know, you get different courts. If there's a jury trial, you'll get, you know, a composition of, of juries that's completely distinct in each of these states, you might hmm. up, end up getting four separate results. I mean, I think what happens in one state might have persuasive authority as to what happens in another state. A judge might see the legal reasoning of, you know, an appellate judge in another state who reviewed the case and say, you know, you know what, that's a compelling read of their statute. Our statute is is similar here in Indiana. Um, you know, that that might be reasoning that I'll use, but they're not directly related. So we could see, you know, people in the District of Columbia securing relief just because of the nature of the judges and, and juries in D.C. and people in Indiana, um, you know, losing the case or, or having the case thrown out in court. So hmm. um, that's one really interesting aspect of this. While this is a unified effort, there's certainly not going to be a, a unified outcome. Um, oftentimes you'll see attorneys general band together uh, as part of one lawsuit, usually in federal court against a company, but that's not what's happening here. Hmm. This is sort of, uh, these are four cases on four separate tracks that, that sort of increases the chances from consumer advocates that one of them is going to be successful. Uh, mm-hmm. And once you're successful once, that really can be persuasive to other judges because you've established some sort of legal precedent, some sort of compelling legal theory, at least to one judge uh, or to one jury. I see. And these are civil suits, not criminal. Yep. These are civil suits. No one's going to jail. Um, 
Okay. Despite the wishes of you know, some, some people who would <laughs> want to jail big tech companies, uh, nobody's th- freedom is, is being threatened here. This is just about um, you know giving uh, some sort of relief to consumers in these jurisdictions who have faced this alleged wrong, people who have really tried uh, to proactively protect their information. Um, and Google allegedly is still collecting their location data, um, you, you know, whether it's through Wi-Fi or broadband or anything else. And what kind of timeline are these sorts of things typically on? Are we, are we talking years here? Let's just say uh, the timeline we're on will make a snail in your backyard look like a Indy 500 race car. <laughs> uh, these okay. take forever. I mean, it's so unsatisfying uh, to follow these legal developments in our system because we're, we get really excited when these suits are, are filed um, mm-hmm. But then we have years of discovery and competing motions. Um, if we got a, resolu- a a firm resolution to this by 2024, I'd be pleasantly surprised. Um, mm. But you have to start somewhere. These suits have to start somewhere. And we end up seeing really interesting uh, decisions on cases that were brought sometimes as long as 10 to 15 years ago. They've made their way through our court system. Um, you know, they're... A decision might come down at a state district court. It will be appealed. The appellate court will say, you you know, you got this uh, interpretation of this law uh, wrong in your original decision, so they'll remand the case for reconsideration. Somebody else wins. That's appealed to the appeals court. Uh, So it can be an extremely long, frustrating process. Um, Hmm. And, you know, that means that lawyers out there, legal academics, have to have a certain Sticktuitiveness, if that's a word, <laughs> right, uh, right. to follow these developments, you know, even after they're they're out of the headlines. And let's mm-hmm. be honest, it will be out of the headlines, you know, in the next couple of days. Uh, but right. these suits are, are are still, you know, they they are active, uh, hmm. and unless they are immediately dismissed, which I find completely unlikely, um, you know, we're at least going to have some twists and turns to this litigation for the foreseeable future. It's kind of a question out of left field, but do do different states, do different jurisdictions, at different parts of the country have reputations for things going through them quickly or more slowly when it comes to legal things? I'm not sure about quickly or slowly. Um, some courts are better equipped to deal with certain types of cases. Um, hmm. So there's a reason, for example, that all businesses are incorporated in the state of Delaware. It has nothing ah. to do with the beauty of Rehoboth Beach, um, which is beautiful. <laughs> Right. Uh, but it's because they have business-friendly chancery courts. Um, mm. So they, if they're going to get sued, they want to be sued in that venue um, because they have uh, a sympathetic court and one that efficiently handles cases. So sometimes it's about speed, but sometimes it's about um, you know just the way the nature of how state courts have have developed, you know, based on the political history of that state. Hmm. All right. Well, as they say, time will tell and uh, we'll keep an eye on it uh, over the next few years. Our hair will be a lot grayer by the time we get a resol- uh, resolution here. We'll have a, a link to that in the show notes, of course. Uh, my story this week, kind of a, a lighter story, but I thought it could uh, lead to some interesting conversation uh, for the two of us. Uh, this is from WGLT.org, which is an NPR station from Illinois State University written by Jack Growl, and uh, the, the headline is the district's, uh, a school district, this is District 87, their cybersecurity insurance costs are going to jump 334%. Uh, 
this story says that just a year ago, they were paying about $5,000 a year for cybersecurity insurance. This year, the cost has more than tripled. They're going to be paying over $22,000 a year for cyber insurance. A couple things stood out to me here. One, um, they they are shopping for their cyber insurance through a cooperative, which was sort of, I guess, news to me that this exists. But it, it, when I thought about it, I thought, yeah, that makes total sense. Right. That you'd, have, you'd have a cooperative for the, buying these sorts of things. So that's certainly in the best interest of the school districts. Absolutely, yeah. And we've seen that in, in other settings too, these insurance cooperatives, for sure. Yeah. But the other thing that caught my eye here was uh, they pointed out that um, in a memo to the school board, they said that their limits are decreased. The limits of coverage are decreased until they fully implement multi-factor authentication and that they're expecting their multi-factor authentication rollout to be done by sometime in late March. So I thought just from a policy point of view that, you know, this is something you and I have talked about before, how how much influence the insurance companies have on best practices. And it seems to me that's playing out here. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at insurance in any other context, you see these same types of policies. So uh, if you are a safe driver, they will decrease your premiums. Uh, Mm. If you have the latest safety feature in your vehicle, it'll be easier to insure and you might get lower deductibles. So that's Mm -hmm. not something that just happens in the cyber insurance industry. I think because cybersecurity insurance is still a relatively new phenomenon, um, it's still sort of being worked out what that looks like in the real world. I happen to think it's a completely sensible policy from the perspective of an insurance company. You know, if if we're going to cover you and, and give you a you know nice little uh, sum of money if you're the victim of a ransomware attack, we want to make sure that you are doing the most you possibly can to limit your own risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and something like multi-factor authentication, which it seems like the school district is saying, you know, they're going to try and institute that over the next uh, couple of months. I, I think that's, you know, a very good place for them to start. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of, you know, uh, insurers requiring things like sprinklers and fire escapes. And you know, to your point, I know like my own homeowner's insurance, one of the check boxes is, you know, do you have a a fire extinguisher in your kitchen. You know, Absolutely. Do you have smoke yes alarms and, in every room, which I'm reminded right. of every time I cook something. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. So I, I, I guess, I mean, I guess there's a danger of overreach here that, um, you know, the the insurance companies could be so restrictive and uh, slash expensive that, uh, as you and I have mentioned here before, I've wondered if we're, this, if cyber insurance could go the way of flood insurance, right. where it becomes uh, such a bad bet for uh, for-profit companies that it, it, we have to rely on the, the federal government as a backstop, um, and again, I think you know time will tell if that happens. But um, with these huge payouts we see with ransomware, uh, I don't think it's out out of the question that that we could it could go that way. Absolutely. I mean, this school district, as you said, was paying $5,000 a year, and that's up to $22,000. So in the context of this district's budget, which they quote at $80 million, that for now is a drop in the bucket. But these mm-hmm. costs are going to add up over time. Uh, and as we see ransomware attacks happen to all different types of public and private institutions, 
you know, that's the the likeliness of that risk befalling your company, your school district, your municipality is greater. Um, you know, just because we've seen it happen uh, in so many places across the country. Uh, and so it, it, of course, makes sense that because these companies have had to, you know, provide payoffs after ransomware attacks, that they're going to want to minimize their own risk by raising premiums. Um, I'm, I'm hoping there's sort of a price sweet spot where we won't go the way of flood insurance. Um, school districts, municipalities will still be able to ad- afford cyber insurance. The costs aren't going to be astronomical, but they will be enough so that the industry can sustain itself. Yeah. You know, I think we found that sweet spot in homeowners insurance and auto insurance. It's mm. not always perfect, but they are viable markets. Um, right. I know that because I, I watch TV and there's a commercial for a home insurance or auto insurance company, you know, every two minutes. Right, uh, right, right. So it's a competitive market. It is. And that's what we're hoping yeah. for here with with cybersecurity insurance. Um, I, I do think there that danger of it becoming like flood insurance where it's something that's uninsurable. The risk is too high for any individual company to to undertake. Um, that's going to end up being really dangerous for consumers. So I hope that they find that sweet spot. Um, mm-hmm. And even despite you know the three hundred and thirty percent increase we see in this article, it seems like the school <laughs> here is still going to pay for cyber insurance. Yeah, um, and they have to. They have to. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you're just assuming too much risk. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story as well in our show notes. And uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Susan St. Clair. She's from a company called WhiteSource. And our conversation focused on open source software and uh, potential regulations that might be coming down the pike that could affect the way folks use open source software and develop it. Here's my conversation with Susan St. Clair. You know, certainly open source uh, software has been a very strong community. It's grown over time. 
I can speak from my, you know, very short professional experience in saying that, you know, back in the day, you know, people really looked at open source as sort of this hobbyist sort of thing. You know, it wasn't where real software development happened. That has completely changed 180 degrees in that, you know, now it is certainly, you know, a majority of applications, depending on your industry and vertical and language and all of that. But, you know, certainly well over half or even as high as 90% of applications that are being developed commercially, you know, not just for internal use that we see out in the world. And I really think that what's driving that, one, I think it, times have changed. People are more open to the idea that, oh, you know, I, I can go to some repo somewhere, some registry somewhere and grab what I need. But I think also what's driving it is really, I mean, <laughs> we all feel it in all aspects of our lives, but, you know, there there's not enough time. We're being asked to do more with less time mm-hmm. at a higher quality. So, you know what, not in a negative way, but we have to look at ways we can become more efficient, take shortcuts, you'll be smarter about what we do in, in our jobs and, and getting software out. Yeah, it strikes me that um, it allows developers to be very modular as they're putting things together. You know, why, why should I write a new uh, bit of code that checks a credit card number if that already exists? It's out there. It's been tested. Lots of people have had the opportunity to bang on it. And, uh, you know, feedback is it's pretty good. Um, is that a fair assessment of how some people are approaching this? I think absolutely, absolutely. And I would even say that not only more modularized, again, that's just kind of the way that we're writing applications now with, you know, microservices and APIs even, but, you know, so it's more modularized. And I think there's also just the kind of like, well, why should I, I mean, there were, there's always been modular components, like, you know, back in the day, you know, FlexNet and and all of that within the Microsoft ecosystem, but why would I have to pay for that? Like Mm. it should just be part of the community. So I do think it's a, a shift in that aspect as well. So what are some of the risks then? I mean, security-wise, uh, if we're sharing things, uh, does that you know, take away a little bit of the, the genetic diversity in our code, if you will? Yeah, so I, I think there, there are multiple risks. Um, certainly, I, I do think potentially uh, a lack of diversity. I like that. I like that uh, in our code. That being said, there's so many open source uh, repository or, or libraries out there that hmm. I, I don't know that that's like a huge risk, maybe in certain mm-hmm. ecosystems um, for sure. But I think the risk, and this is interesting, I think the risk is actually that we become, it's more visible, right? It's some of the flaws that in how we write code. So certainly security, because kind of that's my space and that's my focus right now is a big risk. It's not so much I think that things are more or, or worse. They're more insecure. I think it's more that there's just so many eyes on it and so many people testing it and using it that it just becomes more visible when if you probably looked at you know, applications way back in the day, nobody really knew what was going on. So they might be there, they might not be there, but you just really don't know. And and that's not 
the case in open source today. So I think there's that. I think there's also certainly, of course, you know, when you look at, at quality and, and and performance and, you know, some of these other ones, certainly they're at legal, of course. I mean, there's certainly mm-hmm. risks there. But I think from security, my feel is that, it, it, again, there's just so many eyes and there's just so many people looking for things that um, they, they just get found. So in terms of the the regulatory scrutiny that uh, open source software is receiving these days what where are we with that or is there are we coming into an era where it's uh, attracting more attention Oh absolutely I mean 100% absolutely Again, you know, looking back into history, like when was when you first started in the industry, when was the last time you heard about a cyber breach in the mainstream news? Like never. Like my parents, I would never be able to explain that to my parents. Mm. Now it, it seems to be on the daily or at least the weekly that we're hearing about these supply chain attacks or, or certainly, you know, breaches because a cloud component wasn't uh, secured appropriately, some sort of IAC template, you know, wasn't wasn't uh, correctly configured. So I, I do think that that has, again, risen the profile. It has become mainstream. It's also hit, like, not just like some little shop or some little school board where, you know, of course they don't know what they're doing with regards to security. It's hit like big companies like, you know, Microsoft, you know, Apple, the U.S. government, certain agencies. So again, that's really raised the profile. And then that comes with it. Regulatory, I don't know, requirements is the right word at this point, but Mm -hmm. certainly that is the direction that we're moving. You know, again, I kind of go back and forth in terms of, you know, I'm very much a like, oh, let's be free and let's, you know, this is innovation and we need this openness. But when you look at certain systems and they're relying on that 90% of open source components, and this is how we work, this is how we live, this is, I mean, it's our cars, it's our, our, our Zoom meetings, it's whatever. I mean, I do think there needs to be some sort of oversight, just like any sort of utility, if you will, that we use elsewhere. You know, in my mind, it's it sort of, um, I guess I, I can see some parallels to cybersecurity in general, which is that, you know, over time, we've seen this professionalization of that vertical. And in that process, you know, there are some people who get, uh, who, who pine for the old days, you know, when it was more uh, like the Wild West, when you could do whatever you want, when there were a handful of people who, you know, were the rock stars who really knew what was going on. And I wonder how much of that uh, analogy really plays out here with open source that, you know, professionalization, it seems, is absolutely necessary as we all rely on these tools. But I suppose, you know, with that comes uh, a little less freedom than we used to have. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. If I if I'm just like, you know, playing around and I'm part of this amazing community and we can do what we want. I mean, that's one thing. And I'm I'm willing to accept a little bit more risk. Uh, again, oh, it's just you know some home automation thing that I that I built myself, and I mean my TV goes out or my lights don't, mm-hmm. you know, work with my app that I built. Who cares? But it's when if it's something that's running my business or that I'm selling to my customers, that's a whole nother ball game. And so I think it's reasonable to ask for some sort of specialization or some sort of uh, professionalism within that space. I think the flip side of that is that, you know, certainly this has been a very, in my opinion, kind of a niche 
thing, at least the security aspect of uh, open source. You know, we're really now, again, as an industry, security is overwhelmed. <laughs> the technology is changing, perhaps, um, mm. you know, with cloud native, with IAC, with all these things that maybe we didn't grow up with for people who've been in the industry a while. And there aren't enough of us. So part of that, you know, asking our fellow team members in app dev or DevOps or, or whatnot to help us out with regards to application security I think that you do have to have standards and you do have to have expectations and you do have to have a certain level of professionalism to to aid in that transition and to facilitate that conversation. How would you like to see this play out ideally? How What, what would uh, be the balance that we could strike between the need for more professionalism, perhaps more regulations, but also doing so in a mindful way to not stifle innovation? Yeah, and, and that not that the million-dollar question? I could take yeah. that and I could build my own <laughs> consultancy and I'd be set for life. No. Right, um, right. <laughs> you know, I think the worry that I have and, and, I, you know, talking to my colleagues even, I think the worry that I have with regulation is that so many times, with, especially within this industry, we have seen regulation for the sake of regulation or compliance for the sake of compliance. And then we see these lists that come out every year by various research entities or vendors. And wow, you could just copy and replace that year from year to year because nothing's changed. Mm. So I think like to strike the balance between more regulation or hopefully you know, potentially more regulation and all that comes with that is that, you know, we need to somehow tie it to, we're not just checking a box, we're not just running that report, we're not just saying, oh, you know, we, we met this A1, you know, standard or whatnot, but we need to really, I think, be tying it to results. And, and by results, I mean, like, again, uh, you know, something that, you know, we, we run this report and it says that it's clean from a security point of view, but then, you know, um, next month or something, something is found and it was actually exploited. So what was your due diligence in terms of keeping up on that? What was your due diligence in fixing it and notifying it? You know, I think we need to tie the the pieces together in some mm. sort of meaningful way. So again, it's just not a box to be checked or report to be generated to show your auditors. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you know, bridges get inspected on, on a regular basis, right? You don't just build it, have it inspected and say, well, we're done here forevermore, right? <laughs> right. It's an right. ongoing thing and you actually have to fix and you, you know, it's, yeah, it's an ongoing thing. It's not a one-time yeah. deal. Ben, what do you think? It's really interesting. I mean, you're balancing competing interests. The promise, as she talked about, of open source software is it's available to everyone. It'll foster creativity, collaboration. Um, But with that freedom comes, you know, security difficulties, security threats. Uh, And that's just a really difficult problem to contend with. And I don't think that there's an easy solution there. No, no. And, you know, the thing that we've seen lately with this whole, all all the stuff with uh, Log4j, which has certainly been making headlines, um, that I think has 
put to bed, I don't know if it's fair to, to call it a myth, but the, the notion that um, open source software is secure because of the fact that there are so many eyes on it, I think people have had to re-examine that notion that uh, whether or not that's actually the case. So right. it's interesting times. It is, you know, and there's still obviously advantages to having open source software, but, you know, I think we need to recognize the reality that times have changed. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, our thanks to Susan St. Clair from White Source for joining us. We do appreciate her taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.